the book of Philippians, and uh, just a great time to be together um, talking about the thankfulness, being thankful. And so uh, tonight, again, as we continue back in the book of Revelation, if you would turn with me there to the book of Revelation, we'll be reading verses, uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 8 through 12. And of course, we, uh, we won't get all the way through there, but uh, we do want to always read in context together. So let us uh, turn there, the very words of God, Revelation chapter 14. Look at verse number 8. We'll begin reading there. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And I was telling Wendy that, again, this is one of those, I've, I've told the, the story a hundred times, but in the, when I was in the ninth grade, this is part of the portion of Scripture that God used when I was as lost as could be to read this thing. This is a fearful thing. I mean, this is what God used to bring fear in me, even when I was in the ninth grade, long before I was saved. But there's, you read this text. It's just an amazing thing when you get a hold of that. He says there, uh, verse uh, number, number 9, A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. Again, that's a most important portion of Scripture there, into the cup of his, indig- of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Now, brethren, again, there's so much doctrine here in this portion of Scripture. I mean, forever and ever, and ages and ages and ages to come. There is no annihilation, brethren. When you, are, when you die and you're outside of Christ, you are forever and ever and ever. And we're going to look at that in hell. And the Bible says there, if you will, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoso receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Well, uh, brethren, again, as we are gathered back together here in the book of Revelation, we find here in verse number 8 the first mention of Babylon in the book of Revelation, which now becomes the focal point of God's judgment. It is quite a stunning thing as we move forward here, 14, 15, Brother Dean tonight, 16, 17. I mean, you really begin to zero in. God really begins to zero in on Babylon. But this is the first mention in the book of Revelation. Unlike the previous angel that we looked at, the previous portion of this text, who preached the good news of the gospel, this second angel now that we're introduced to here this evening preaches the terrifying news of God's judgment upon Babylon. Which tells us then, brethren, that the eternal gospel that was being preached and the angels, he's preaching the gospel there, amen, was rejected by most of them dwelling on the earth. This, again, is the whole indication here that we can glean from that, right? The gospel's preached, most of them rejected it, so God's judgment continues, amen? And so this is what we see for sure. Holy Writ uh, reveals to us that Babylon sometimes refers to a literal city, And again, what do we always say, brother? We could say it over and over again. Context, context, context. Sometimes it indeed is speaking of a literal city, which we're going to look at tonight, again, to allow the scriptures again to delineate to us what we're looking at here this evening. Sometimes it is a literal city, amen. Uh, Sometimes it speaks uh, of a political system. 
Sometimes in the Bible, it speaks of the false church, the ecumenical false church. And so, again, there's all of these things that encompass this term Babylon. And so, eventually, Lord willing, we're going to be able to define each of those. And again, at other times, it's a political system, all of which mingle, which is really interesting. If we had time tonight, brethren, you could go back to Genesis you can see the genesis of this in the book of Genesis, this whole idea of Babylon and its teachings and how it has tethered out from Genesis chapter 10. It's a stunning thing, actually, and it goes even to the very end. It's a most amazing thing. But again, just looking at a couple of portions of Scripture together, again, look here as we continue forward. I just want to kind of lay the groundwork here. Look at chapter 17. Uh, concerning Babylon. Look there, if you will, as it starts to, again, as we see how God then is now turning his attention on the city of Babylon. Look at verse number one, and verse number one gives us some very interesting clues here as we will get here eventually, Lord willing. But I want to read this just so you can hear it. Verse one, and there came one of these seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore which sitteth upon many waters. And so there's a clue right there, amen. So God's judgment is coming, the great whore that sitteth on many waters. And really our text defines what that is. Who's the great whore and what are the many waters? And so this is the glorious thing. We don't even have to try and guess or wonder what it is. Look at verse number 2. With whom the kings of the earth had committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sit upon the scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And again, this is descriptive language, which our text <laughs> defines for us. Again, we don't even need to try and guess or isogeet something into there. Verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls and having a golden cup in her hand full of the abominations and filthiness of her, of her fornication. Think of that language, brethren that's being used there. Think of how God is defining what this is, how much he hates what's taking place, how much he despises it. Think of that language, brethren, and look as he continues. Look there, if you would, in verse number five. Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And so again, this is the direction that we're going. The first mention here in chapter 14, this is where God's attention gets turned, where his wrath now is going to be turned again. Now, I want to define for us verse number one, the great whore and the many waters. Let's just look there. The Bible defines here in chapter 17 what they are. So look at verse number 15. If we just go ahead there, what are the many waters? Look there at verse number 15 of Revelation 17. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples, multitudes, look at what it says, nations and tongues. And so there, there's no guessing what that is, brother. And it is a literal nation, peoples and tongues. That's, that's where we're headed there. Now look a little farther down there again. The Bible defines for us what he's talking about in verse number 1. Look down just a little bit farther at verse number 18. Again, the woman which thou sawest, amen. Again, he's defining for us what he's describing in verse number 1 of chapter 17. And the woman which thou sawest is that what? That great city. Well, who's the great city? Babylon is defined as the great city. And so it's a literal city here that we're looking at. The Bible says, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Look at Revelation 18, verse 1. Again, just a couple of portions of scripture here as we 
kind of lay the groundwork out there for us. Look at now, this is how God views Babylon. Again, this is God viewing and seeing Babylon as he views and sees it. But look there, if you would. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. There again, is that, is that a familiar slogan that we're going to see tonight? Yes, it is. Here God again repeats what he repeats in chapter 14, and we're going to look at that. It has become the habitation of what? Devils. I mean, God's describing again what Babylon is full of, a city that's full of these things. It's full of devils. It's full of what else? What does it say there? <clears throat> and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit. And we'll look at that later. And the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. I mean, what a glorious description that God gives to us here this evening concerning the city. Now, <clears throat> look at one more again, just as the, as the context tells us what it is. It's a city. It can be a false church, which we're going to look at. Eventually, we'll get to that because, brethren, that, more than anything else, as we are even experiencing it today in our own world, brethren, <clears throat> the world comes against the church. No question about it. But I want you to think again. Where did we get the most opposition from, even in this last tyrannical try, brother? It came from where? It came from within the false churches. And this, again, is what we're going to see as, this, as, the, as the Antichrist gathers these political things together, these false churches as they are all gathered together. That's where the power, this beast power, is going to come from. It's a most stunning and amazing thing. And Babylon, yes, will play a definite central role in all of it. But I want you to see, there was a church that Peter wrote about. Look here at 1 Peter chapter 5. There was a literal church in a literal place. Look here, if you will. Brother Dean talked uh, just a few weeks ago about the, uh, the local churches, amen, and the church universal. And Peter speaks of a local church in a particular place. Look here, 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verse number 10. And again, as he brings his first letter to a close, he is greeting some of the brethren, and look at verse number 10 there. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after ye have suffered a while, and make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's that glorious phrase, forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I've written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at where? Babylon. Elect together. There it is again. A local church gathered at Babylon. It's an amazing thing again. So again, Scripture speaks of Babylon as a literal place and has a literal church there when Peter was writing this thing. It literally is a place. Elect together with you. Saluteth you and so doth Marcus, my son. Now, brethren, there is another thing that Babylon represents in the Scriptures. Now, again, some of the brothers may or may not agree with me, I happen to lean towards the reformers and what they believed and what they taught concerning Rome, concerning Rome. And I am still convinced in the scriptures that Babylon also, which we're going to see, represents Rome as the ecumenical false church and really the capital of the beast empire. In fact, Again, in Revelation 17, just back up there quickly as we just look at this whole idea of Babylon as we see this whole thing coming together. And Rome being, if you will, this center, this place, as uh, many of the reformers believed, as I believe, 
even to this day. But look back to Revelation chapter 17. Let me just show you the description again that we're given in Holy Scripture. And this is what's so interesting about Scripture is that you can look at it and you can study it out and it will speak to you concerning what it's saying. Amen? That's what we always say. We harp on that. We pounce on that. We talk about it all the time. Because again, brethren, we want to keep, amen, we want to keep to the best as the Spirit of God has given us the ability to do, to be, as Howard talked about tonight, as Dean has talked about, truth. Truth. We want to know the truth. We want to understand the truth of Scripture. And so this is what we must do. Study it and uh, allow the Scriptures to speak to us. I want you to look at Revelation 17. Look at verse number 9 again. Another what I believe description of the Roman Empire revived. Look at verse number 9. Look what the Bible says. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are on seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, brethren, you have to ask yourself, when you look up that word mountain, here's the real thing that helps us to understand what Rome really has become and what it's going to become. Amen? Because it is going to, and it has been, if you will, as we look at this verse here, Revelation 17, verse 9, that word mountain means to lift or rise above the plain. So you ask yourself, how's the word used? How is this exact word used in other portions of the scripture? Because again, Rome is known as what? The city that sits on seven what? Hills, not mountains, but hills. This is the terminology that's used. Go look in the, in the Catholic Encyclopedia, and I'm going to read that for us here in a moment. They actually define Rome as a city that sits upon seven hills, and it has for near brethren 2,000 years almost now. It's had that name. It's had that reputation, and all of the reformers, for the most part, believed that Rome eventually would become this center of the beast, where the beast's power would be centrally located concerning the church, the false church. So I want you to see how this word is used concerning. Here it's mountain. And uh, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. The same word, exact same word, and I want you to see this. Again, keeping in mind what Rome is called. It's, if you will, the city that sits upon seven hills. Look at Matthew chapter 5. And uh, again, just a little bit of word study tonight just to help us to understand and see why some would believe this, amen? Some poo-poo it, but some believe this because of this very reason. Look here, if you would, Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse number 13. Look what Jesus says here. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Verse 14. Ye are the light of what? Ye are the light of the world. This is what Jesus is telling them there in verse number 14. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Do you see that word hill right there? That's the exact same word that's used in Revelation chapter 14. It's mountain. It can be used as a hill. And so again, this is what we see in Scripture. Look at one more, just another example of that. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, the word mountain and hill are both used in the text meaning the same thing. It's a quite an amazing thing. Look at Luke chapter 4 again, just a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. Again, keeping in mind, Rome is the city on seven hills. And uh, as we are going to read in the definition here, look at Luke chapter 4, again, how this word is used. And again, like I said, some brethren think I'm crazy, and they think we're nuts, and that kind of a thing. I don't think I am. I, I might be, but I don't think I am. 
And uh, so we just allow Scripture again to speak concerning this. A very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us. But again, I want you to hear the language that's used. Look there at verse number 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and uh, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command the stone that it be made of bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, That man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high what? Mountain showed him, there it is, there's that word again, amen, into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And so, but this same word here, that's mountain, again, context, brother, right? Context, context, context. This same word, a little later on, look, if you would, there at verse 24. Mountain here in verse number 4, but look what happens here in verse number 24. Look at verse 24 of the same text. Again, a familiar portion of scripture to us. He just got done preaching in the synagogue. He's there. Hey, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting Isaiah. And uh, here's the response that he gets. Look there at verse 24. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet except in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when the great famine was throughout the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in that time, in the time of Elias, Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And of course, when they are talking, when he's talking to them like that, of course, he's talking to the Jews, and it sets them completely off that you would dare bring a Gentile into the conversation, number one. And Jesus, again, we know what he was doing there, but read along. Look what they do. Look what the Bible says. And when they, and all day in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill. Do you see that there? Whereon? There it is again. So we have that word, that the same exact Greek word that's being used, mountains, being used hill. And so again, in John, we understand there that if we believe in the eschatology as I do concerning Rome and what I think the, the role that's going to be played there, clearly that fits the definition of the city that sits on seven hills. Amen? That's exactly what it does. Context, context, context. Now, it is significant to us that Rome began as a network of seven hill settlements, and it did, and is the only city that has for near 2,000 years been known as the city on seven hills. That's exactly what it's known as and still is today. In fact, the Catholic Encyclopedia says this, it is within the city of Rome, which is called the city of seven hills, in which the entire area of the Vatican state proper is now confined. And so again, they even themselves, brethren, are admitting that here we are sitting on these seven hills and we're confined within this thing. And brethren, I am convinced in my heart of hearts that this is exactly what the, uh, what the, uh, the Antichrist and the beast, when it does do it, amen, is going to be using as far as the false church, as far as bringing the political power together. I mean, look what they're doing, brethren. Look now even there in that horrendous whoredom that they have going on right there in Vatican City, okay? They've got all kinds of idols. They're worshiping all manner of religions. They're welcoming all. It's an amazing thing to behold, brethren. And here we have, again, John telling us and warning us concerning this very thing. 
speaking of this city. Now look what God does in verse number 8 of, of Revelation, again, chapter 14. Look what John writes there concerning this. Look at what he says there. He uses, if you will, a prophetic repetition here in chapter 14. So he speaks of Babylon for the first time, and then we see there again in verse number 8, look what he says. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is what? Is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all the nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. As I said, brethren, John here is led to use, if you will, a prophetic repetition. It is fallen, it is fallen. In fact, fallen is an action verb, amen? It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Sometimes we read through scripture to fall down. If one falls down, you are what? There's an action of falling down. And so this is what John is saying. And really, when we look at the context where we're at here in our text, do you realize that it hasn't happened yet? He is actually speaking here prophetically in the future because again we looked ahead when we look ahead to revelation 17 revelation 18 we see when god actually implements the falling here he's just saying that it's fallen it's fallen he's using this double repetition if you will brethren to guarantee to say that as we move along in our text this is going to happen i'm writing it like it's already happened because it's guaranteed to happen god is going to bring this thing to pass He is so certain. John states it as a past event. When the destruction comes, God will indeed, brethren, again, as we're just looking at Babylon here briefly, as later on, Lord willing, we will get deeper down into the city of Babylon. He will bring it to pass and most suddenly and most speedily. When he brings this destruction, it will be in a day. Other things will happen in an hour, in an hour, in an hour. And I want you to see this again, the speediness in which God brings destruction upon the city of Babylon. Again, as we lay the groundwork here, look at 18, verse number 8. I want you to see this. In one day, (laughs) Babylon's been building over generations in time. Like I said, I could take you back to Genesis and show you where this Babylonian cult, where this stuff started, and it still just keeps rolling along. God like that is going to bring it to a conclusion. It's an amazing, stunning thing when you study this out, brethren, in Scripture. Look at here how John, under the inspiration of God, tells us how quickly this is going to happen. Look at verse number 8 of Revelation chapter 18. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. I mean, it's right now. When God brings this judgment, it is going to happen immediately and speedily. What are the plagues? Look there, if you will. Death and mourning and famine, she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth who? Who judgeth her, who judgeth the city. So in one day, God's bringing all of these plagues upon the city of Babylon. Look at what else he does. In fact, it ratchets up just a little bit. Look at verse number 10. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city For in one hour thy judgment hath come. And so within one hour, God in one day is going to bring the plagues. And with one hour, he's going to bring judgment upon the great city. Not only that, within one hour, another thing comes to the city. Look at verse 17. Look there, if you would. Look what the Bible says. For in one hour, so great riches is come to naught. So in other words, in one hour, God's going to, he's going to bring the plagues in one day. In one hour, he's going to bring the city to naught. He's going to completely take away all of its possessions. It's an amazing. Poverty comes in one hour. This is God's judgment coming upon the city 
of Babylon. In fact, look at verse 19, just one more there. Not only do we have the plague coming, the judgments for sure is to come, as John has said, as though it's already happened. Poverty is going to come upon the city. And look at here, if you would, at verse 19. Look what it says there. And they cast dust in their heads and cried weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, the great city wherein were made rich, all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour she is made what? Desolate. Again, this is chapter 14. This is the beginning. This is where it all starts. This is where God's judgment begins to be, if you will, if you can envision it, if you will, a funnel. His funnel starts to come on down, and now everything that's taking place there now gets pointed in this direction as his judgment begins to fall upon the great city of Babylon. In fact, brethren, you know how I am. I can't help myself. But see, this isn't the first time that God has said this. This isn't the first time that God has used a double, if you will, the double terminology here. In fact, there was another city in the old city in the Old Testament where God uses the exact same language. I want you to see this. Look at Isaiah 21. Look back there if you would. The exact same language. The only thing that's different is the preacher. It's a prophetic thing that's made. It's the same exact language that's said. It's just the preacher's different. We got Isaiah preaching it instead of John. And so look there, if you would, Isaiah chapter 21. I want you to see this again. The exact, precise, same language. Isaiah chapter 21. If I can get there, I went too far. Look there, if you would, at verse number 9. Isaiah chapter 21. Look at verse number 9. Again, different preacher, same message, different time. Look at verse number 9. And behold... Here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Exact same thing. He's saying the exact same thing. And all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Again, the whoredoms, the different things that Israel was certainly participating in. This is precisely what God is, John is writing. Hold on there. Look what it says there. It says in verse 10, O oh, my threshing, uh, the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. Does anybody know how long, how many years passed? See, Isaiah is doing exactly what John did. He is exactly speaking of something that's going to happen in the future. In fact, he's preaching here like it's already happened. Anybody know how long it was from the time he said this until Babylon, the actual Babylon, the city fell? 200 years later. It was 200 years. John or Isaiah is doing exactly what John did. He's saying, hey, you know what? God is going to bring this thing. It's going to fall. It's going to fall. It's guaranteed to fall. This is what John is saying. Exactly as it fell in the Old Testament like this, the revived Roman Empire will indeed fall just exactly as this did. Amen? I mean, this is so gloriously true. This is so gloriously clear to me that uh, I don't have any problem standing firm on this idea, as many of the reformers did, that yes, Rome is going to be built up, and it's going to be speaking of them in Scripture, and they are indeed going to fall. They're going to fall because God said they're going to fall. Now it's going to be in the future, but this was 200 years before it happened. So again, we see different preachers preaching the same thing, guaranteeing, brethren, what? The same ends. That, that's, that's, what I, that's where I'm going with it, amen? God declared it once and did it, He's declaring it again through the preacher John, and he will indeed bring the same end to Babylon. 
Now look back there again. This is the scary thing here as we get into verses 9 and 10. This angel is preaching concerning this Babylon. It's, it's guaranteed he's preaching, like I said, as it already has, has happened. And then look what he says. This, this again, brethren, this is the kind of thing. These are the sorts of things, brethren, that more preachers need to preach about. These kinds of things. The wrath of God is a good thing to preach about. Amen? And the guarantee that the wrath of God is coming is a good thing to preach about. We were just thinking last Sunday, I think we were all sitting around talking and, uh, about uh, Whitfield. Amen? Greatest open-air preacher that's ever lived. Jonathan Edwards, all of these men that God used. And he had to go, I mean, hands of the sinner, of an ang- sinner in the hands of an angry God. He had to preach it outside of his own church for a revival to come. I think it was how we were talking about it. They kicked him out of his own church, brethren. It's amazing. He preached it at his church and nothing happened. It wasn't until he went to another fellowship and preached that same message that God moved the hearts of men concerning the wrath of God. This is what we should preach more of. I know people want to talk about love. People want to talk, and there's a good balance. You, you always have to balance it because his wrath is perfect. His wrath isn't like mine. Mine's imperfect. You know why? Because I'm German. I'm a fallen man. I'm a sinner. My anger is not right and not good like his is. His is perfect. His wrath is good, and we're going to see that here, just how perfect and good it really is. Look there, if you would, at verses 9 and 10. And the third angel followed them. (laughs) So we got one angel preach the gospel. The second angel here, we just got done taking a look at here. He's He's uh, he's busy preaching. Babylon is falling. Now we got third angel in verse number nine. What's the third angel saying? And there followed another angel saying, uh, or verse nine. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, "If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, that same shall drink the wine of the wrath of who? Of God." Now again, brethren, these kinds of passages make one stand up. And take attention, amen, which is poured out without mixture. Now, brethren, that's a very interesting statement that John makes there. You know what he's referring to? When it says that God's wrath is being poured out without mixture, in the ancient days, you know this. They used to take their wine and they would mix it with water and water it down. Not here. This is not watered down. There is nothing but pure, unadulterated, the wrath of God that's coming, full in its full mixture, brethren. This is without mixture. This is something that God is going to bring in the fiercest way. Into the cup, now listen, which is poured without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now there's so much here in this verse, and I realize it's already getting late. But Luke does indeed introduce us this evening to the third angel who warns of the eternal consequences. This is what he's doing. He's warning those on the earth of the eternal consequences of those who would indeed worship the beast. Those who would indeed take the mark of the Antichrist. He is warning them the truth, brethren, that God indeed holds a cup of wrath which makes those who are under his judgment, he makes them drink it, is conveyed more than 13 times throughout Scripture. This is nothing new. This idea that God has a cup of wrath in his hand is 
over and over and over again poured out throughout Scripture, if I can use that terminology. Now, this is what's interesting. Thirteen times we see this in Scripture. Now listen, the wine in the cup is associated with God's wrath, which describes his passionate anger. See, there's a wine and then there's a cup. The wine's in the cup. So the wine is the thing that we are seeing here that John is associating, if you will, with God's uh, uh, passionate anger. The cup itself, and again, brethren, you got to take it. There's one and there's another, and they both have these things tied together within one, within Scripture. The cup, if you will, the wine that's in the cup is associated with God's wrath, and it describes his passion and anger. The cup itself is associated, if you will, with God's indignation, which is his anger from a settled disposition. Do you see that? Do you understand what that is? God's anger from a settled disposition? Well, what that literally means is that his anger is perfect. <laughs> Again, as I said, my anger, my wrath is not his is, and this is the combination of the cup and the wine. This is literally what John is saying. There's one that's combined with the other, and what's going to happen is the nation's going to be drinking of that cup. It's an amazing for me. You study this stuff, and I got shivers up my spine several times thinking about what this really means, brethren, to those who are in the great tribulation, those who are going to experience the cup of the wrath of the wine of God. It's truly an amazing thing. In fact, there's so many things that this is tied to. I mean, over and over again in Scripture, we, we see it. In fact, he mentions it again in Revelation. Look at verse 16. Look at verse number 19. He mentions it again. Keeping in mind the cup and the wine, they're together. They both represent something of God's wrath, a different, if you will, dispos disposition of God's wrath, his perfect wrath. Look at chapter 16. Look at verse 19. Look what the Bible says there again. 16 verse 19. And the great city was divided into three parts. This is the actual as it's beginning to take place. Amen. And the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God. And gave unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. There it is, there's the cup, and there's the wine, and there's the fierceness of his wrath. All tied together, all perfectly, if you will, perfect in their order. Perfect in how he's going to distribute it. Perfect in how he's going to hand the cup, and he's going to make the nations drink of it. It's really quite an amazing thing when you think about that. But the other amazing thing is this, brother, and again, as I said, it's, we see this in scripture over and over again. It isn't just here in Revelation. It's in Isaiah. It's in Psalms. It's all along the way. God warning and speaking of this combination of the wine and the cup and his perfect wrath and his perfect indignation that he is going to be pouring out upon those who reject the gospel. Look here, if you would, Psalm 75. We'll just finish up here with a couple of verses here. Psalm 75, again, just to keep this kind of thing this evening. It's already 8.15. Look at Psalm 75 again. Many of you are sitting out there thinking, well, I can think of this verse, I think of that verse. Again, there's so many of them. But look here again how the cup and the wine are together perfectly. Look here at verse number 7. Psalm 75, look at verse number 7. But God is the judge. 
What is God doing in Revelation? He's judging. He's bringing judgment. Perfect judgment, I might add. He putteth down one and setteth up another. For in the, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. <laughs> there it is again. There's the cup that the Lord has. And the wine is red. Again, cup wine. It is, full of, it is a full mixture. There it is again, brethren. There is no thinning it down. This thing is full and complete. It hasn't been watered down, and it will not be watered down, as it is in the book of Revelation. Look what it says there. It is full mixture, and he poureth, uh, he poureth out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all of the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. You notice the plurality there, the cup and the wine. God's perfect wrath, his perfect indignation, the world will indeed drink it when he brings it to pass. Again, this is something that you see over and over again in Scripture. Look at one more. Look at Jeremiah chapter 25. It's in Psalms. It's in Isaiah. It's in Jeremiah. It's in Revelation. It's everywhere in Scripture. Again, brethren, this is why when you think about God, and again, you think of the number of times that the psalmist writes, you think of the number of times that we consider our own, uh, how should we say, awareness of God. How holy, how perfect, how good, how amazing God really is. And then you consider his wrath. Again, that should make one as a Christian. Amen? Snap to attention very quickly. Understanding his wrath, understanding his indignation, understanding the cup and the wine, understanding all of that. Remember, brethren, <laughs> this is precisely what Jesus drank. You understand that. When he went to the cross, remember what he had? He had the cup and the wine that was filled with the wrath of God. That's what it represented. When they drank of that cup in the Last Supper, that's exactly what he was drinking. That's exactly what he was saying. Amazing, isn't it, how this all ties together? Again, the cup and the wine and all of God's wrath and all of that. He endured all of that for you and I, brethren. And you see here, again, in the book of Jeremiah, just, again, and we'll finish up here. Look at Jeremiah chapter 25. Look at verse number 15. For thus saith the Lord of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to what? To drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. So again, we see again God bringing the cup the wine, the wrath, all of it completely holy and perfectly, uh, if you will, parceled out throughout the pages of Scripture. And this is what they will experience, brethren, in the wrath and in the great tribulation. To drink the wine of the wrath of God from his cup of indignation means that one is imbibbing. <laughs> I like that word. You know, <laughs> Jesus was accused, what, of being a wine-bibber, you know, of, they're, they're literally bibbing the wrath of God. Think of this, brother, for a minute. They are drinking the wrath of God. <laughs> they are bibbing the wrath of God. Think of this for a moment, brother, as you consider this as we close. You know why? Because they themselves, brother, as John wrote here in our text, in Revelation chapter 14, because they themselves have been imbibing the wine from the cup of Babylon's fornications. Think of what that means. Think of it, brethren. 
They have been drinking, as John wrote, from the wine of Babylon's fornication. God will fill their cup full with his wrath, with his indignation, as he makes the nations drink. Think of this. When you think of all the weird things going on, and i got to stop, just the things we talked about tonight before the meeting, okay? You got some goof, some reprobate, okay? You haven't seen it in the news, I bet, have you? A reprobate that dresses like a woman who's in charge of nuclear waste of our country, amen, was just arrested this weekend for stealing a woman's suitcase, okay? So he could steal, well, how can I say it? The undergarments of whosever suitcase it was to use it. He was arrested and put, it's funny they arrested him. You know what's going to happen? I bet you the officer that arrested him, he's going to have to go to sensitivity training. That's what's going to happen. That's how nuts this place is. But you think, you think, brethren, how crazy it is, how nutty we've become. This is the thing, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare her, I probably did. This is how nutty, this is how crazy, this is how good is evil and evil is bad, amen. This is how light is dark and dark is light. This is where we come. This is the thing that the wrath of God is going to be poured out from his per perfect, glorious cup and wine, the wrath of his indignation against sinful men. This is what John is saying to us this evening in our text. And brethren, again, it has fallen. It has fallen. He's writing as if it's already done because it will indeed be done. Amen. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word this evening. We just think of how crazy things are. How wicked we talked, you know, Jesus being all these things, just how insane it is. I don't think we've even seen the tip. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Lord, if you don't send a, a revival in your churches, as we started out the false church, they are the ones that are going to be used. They are the ones that will be used to indoctrinate. Again, we talked about the blasphemy and the heresies for a moment this evening before the meeting, just unspeakable things being said by those, quote unquote, who claim to be the church. What an evil joke. What an evil bunch of garbage. And Father, it is indeed those who reject the gospel, those who will indeed, as we're going to see later on, when they know it's you, they know it's God throwing 100-pound hailstones down on top of them. Do they repent? Not on your life. Nope, they do not. In fact, they shake their fists at God, knowing it's you. And Father, this is the amazing thing again we see. The gospel the drawing of the Father, the regenerating of the Spirit, all of it just a glorious, miraculous miracle of God. And Father, even in the midst of the Great Tribulation, we see men and women whom you, whom are your elect, your sheep, your lost sheep, who will be found even in the midst of all of that. And we thank you for that. And now, Lord, we pray as we depart this place this evening, we pray for each as we go to our workplaces tomorrow as we uh, go about our business. Uh, Father, we will indeed be about your business as well, taking every opportunity, like Shar did, taking every opportunity, every door that's open to us,
to preach unto them the Lord Jesus Christ, the biblical Christ, how they must repent concerning who he is. They must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be saved. And so, Father, again, we love you and thank you now and pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen and amen.